0: Good morning. My name is Alex, and I serve as lead pastor here at Courtright. Uh, it's my pleasure this morning to introduce our preacher for the day. Uh, Reverend Howard Sullivan uh, will be sharing God's Word with us this morning. and. Um, Howard and Francis are known to us. Um, I think you joined us right before the pandemic started, didn't you? So your timing was a little questionable, but uh, we've, we've loved to have you along uh, on this crazy ride we've been on. And uh, it's been, for me personally, it's been such an encouragement to get to know you. And so Howard's originally from Toronto, where he met Francis uh, when, he was, when they were both students at U of T. And uh, he went on to uh, work in the tech sector uh, as an executive for Hewlett-Packard. And then God called him uh, to a different vocation. And sort of in mid-career in that role, he was called to become a minister of word and sacrament. And he served a number of congregations, most recently uh, Knox Burlington and then Knox Milton, along with... Francie, who was director of Christian education, I believe, and so they're very much a team, and uh, we're delighted that uh, um, they have come to Courtright, and uh, they didn't just come to Courtright, they uh, came with their daughter, Dana, and her husband, Andrew, uh, and their kids. So it's a three-generation uh, Sullivan scenario um, these days around here. Uh, they have four kids uh, who are scattered all over the world, and six grandkids who I know are their pride and joy. Um, so, Howard, we're delighted that you're here today. So if you want to come up, I will pray for you. And, and maybe we can settle this once and for all. Like, is it Howard? Is it Howie? Like, I, don't, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I... I If you need to go and pray about it, that's okay. No,
1: it's uh, the people that knew us when we first came here to Courtright, when it started, called me Howie, because uh, that was the time of life. Then I became more grown up. (laughs) (laughs) And people started calling me Howard. So it doesn't matter, I'll answer to either.
0: And that's actually, I'm glad you brought that up, because that's a really interesting tidbit that I neglected to mention, is that that Francis was the very first staff person at Courtright back when Court was founded, um, before it even started in in, uh, 1980 or so. And uh, um, you did some of the seed work of laying uh, the foundation for Courtright. So um, let me pray for you as we move into the the sermon. Lord God, I thank you for Howard and for Francis. Um, I thank you for your call to Howard Uh, to preach your word, um, and to minister in your name, uh, to be a congregational leader, and I thank you uh, that you have gifted him accordingly, and I pray that as he shares your word with us this morning, that he would trust more and more um, in your call to him, and in those gifts that you've given him. Holy Spirit, empower him yet again this morning. Um, May the words that he speak be to us um, signals that point us to you, Lord Jesus, And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.
1: Amen. Thank you, Alex. I can't express um, how that enables and empowers another minister when you are prayed over before you preach. Um, I just wanted to say thank you for this opportunity to to Courtright. You've had some outstanding speakers this summer as we've been here occasionally and we've watched online. And to be among them, I think, is a privilege for me. So I thank you for that. Let's just pause for a moment in prayer. O God, still in us, the worries of the world, as we listen to your wisdom, spoken by prophets, poets, and apostles, move in us and among us by your Spirit, so that in their words we may meet your living Word, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. So when we uh, opened our summer series this year, we opened with a, a wonderful missionary guest, and uh, he chose to read, as his passage, of Philippians 4. And I got this, oh no, that's my passage, uh, <laughs> what am I going to do? And I decided, well, I'm going to do my passage. So we've got this sandwich going on this summer. You start with Philippians 4 and we're going to end with Philippians 4. We had a wonderful take on it to begin and I hope we have a wonderful take on it to end. Um, I have this uh, propensity when I'm preaching to uh, read a little scripture and talk about it and read a little more and talk about it, and read a little more and talk about it. Because what I find is when you're reading it, you get excited about it. And as you read through the conclusion to Philippians, there's reason to get more and more and more excited. So I want to take you on that journey, and not just read the whole thing and have you forget the beginning when I start to talk about it, but talk about it in pieces, so that we can all get enthused as we go through, and we can see the threads that he's wrapping up with in this beautiful conclusion to the letter. So, if you could show my first slide for me, please. So, this is what we're going to do. We're going to look at four parts. We're going to see that we've got to be one in one mind in the Lord. We have to rejoice in the peace of God. Then there's this, uh, this kind of crazy thing called whatever, and there's seven of them. So, I'm expecting that we're going to examine seven whatevers, and then, in the end, we're going to find out this thing about contentment. And when we look at contentment, we're going to see that that's a a very, very difficult thing to accomplish or achieve. And and we just don't find people, whether they're Christian or non-Christian, that have accomplished that in their lives, contentment. Okay? So let's uh, begin. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Eudea and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the Book of Life. Now, when I read this, I always pause and think, I am so glad that the canon is closed. You know what I mean by that? We're not adding to the Bible anymore. So that means that I will never get called on the carpet like Eudea and Sintiki, and my name will never be in there for posterity as an example of what should not happen, okay? So those poor women have been centered out in Scripture for centuries now, and they're always getting uh, a difficult ride from preachers. I don't think we're going to go that way today, but I just wanted to highlight that for you. So here's what's happening in Philippi. Though things are very good, there are still problems which have to be ironed out. It would appear at the core of these problems lie two essential essential female leaders. And the problem is that they're not getting along. In fact, the tone of the letter at this point suggests that the congregation is divided into factions. For Paul, this is a totally intolerable situation. For the entire letter up to this point has been expounding the Christian virtue of unity of unity, of being together, being one mind in Christ. This unity is such a key characteristic of both individual Christian beliefs and the community's common witness that it is how the world sees us. If the world sees us divided, they do not have a common witness from us. And therefore, they do not see us as a people with a common purpose. In point of fact, Paul is expressing here, uh, what he's expressing here, is that as long as these two factions exist in the Philippian church, there is no true witness. You either believe what this faction says, or you believe what that faction says, but where is the true witness? And this is a huge problem. Because if there is no true witness, how are we promoting the gospel of Christ? The inconsistency is insistent and the judgment is cast in spite of all the good that we just heard. You heard they were doing good things, right? They, they are the co-workers of Paul. They are his dear friends. They are his fellow contenders for the gospel. But as long as they're divided... This good is being undone. So I describe this as the missing element in all this goodness is the same mind in the Lord, if you see it there. It's kind of hard to see. It's red on the slide. You have to be of the same mind in the Lord, Paul says. And if you've forgotten what that same mind in the Lord looks like, let's flip back for a second to... um, Philippians 2 and 5-7. Oh, I didn't mean flip the slide back. Flip the slide forward. <laughs> and we'll look at Philippians 2, 5, 7. There we go. Nope, you went too far ahead on me. There! Okay. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And, and so phenomenal the way Paul describes Jesus' mindset. How does, how does he come up with this incredible description? Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. And there, you know, who he's describing is nothing, right? He's describing us. We are nothing. Because he made himself t- human by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Now, how does this apply to our two women? If you go to slide next slide for me. Okay, he says that these two women have to have the mind of Christ. Now, Euodia and Sintiki are to resolve their differences in this manner, not clinging to the belief that one knows better or more than the other, Rather, they are to humble themselves to the point that each would surrender their position to the other. Why? For the sake of Christ. So, I I may be uh, graduating first in my class. I may be taking the toughest courses at university, and I may think more highly of myself than I ought. I'm in an argument with somebody, and I say, I'm right. And they say, no, I'm right. So the Christian way to resolve that is to step aside from my opinion, to step aside from your opinion, and ask, what would the Lord think? How would Jesus approach this situation? And it becomes paramount. I humble myself by saying, I'm not necessarily right. I don't necessarily know more. And besides that, maybe it's not about me at all. It could be it's about relationship. Do I destroy the relationship because I want to prove myself right? What's left then? So, Eudea and Syntyche are challenged in their divisiveness, to set aside their point of view and look at it from a divine point of view, if you will. Now, they are told humble themselves to the point where they can surrender their position for the sake of Jesus. Now, to me, this is something that our 21st century church must rediscover if we are going to survive as a faithful witness to gospel truth. All that seems to be happening, as I observe it, is we are entrenching ourselves in positions without listening and without seeking what is the mind of Christ. And all I read in journals and all I read on the internet about Christians is We're divided. Sorely divided. And what kind of witness is this to the non-Christian world? I think it's a huge problem. And the problem stems from our human wisdom is always going to be insufficient. No matter how sophisticated we become, no matter how technologically advanced we become, equality with God as it said there, even Jesus did not grasp it. As it's done in another translation. So now, how does Paul address this? It's wonderful. It's what we're trying to do at court, right? In a in a um, a program called mentoring. Paul decides the best way to deal with this is to be compassionate and pastoral. And what he does is he. Uh, assigns an experienced leader to act as an arbitrator between Yodia and Sintiki. someone who is not involved in the factions. And because they're experienced, because they love the Lord, they will be able to bring a different perspective. It's brilliant it's brilliant it's all about community it's all about building the strength of the christian faith and that's my first blah blah blah, yada yada next we in verse 4 we carry on and we have this oh, such a beautiful thing we sing this sometimes don't we da 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 i i wish i had a partner who would sing Um, I do, actually, but she wouldn't come up here. (laughs) So, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding. How many times have people said that to you? May the peace of God that transcends all understanding come to you in this situation that is tearing you apart. It's such a beautiful, beautiful passage. There's so many verses in this conclusion to Philippians 4. Um, And the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Fantastic. Now, I respond to this and I say, come again, Paul? How are we to conduct ourselves as faithful Christians? Well, according to Paul, we are to rejoice. We are to be calm. We are to be kind. We are to be gentle. We are not to be overly anxious. Well, that seems easy for him to say, but not so easy for us to implement in our lives. Now, I'll speak to an older demographic at this point, and I'll say, you remember that old song, Nobody Knows What Trouble I'm In? Yeah. Yeah. Doesn't Paul know how difficult it is to live these days? I mean, think about it. The cost of housing, the cost of food, the cost of just living, well, sending you guys to university. I mean, everything is out of place out of control, as we look at it. There's wars everywhere, there's starving people everywhere. What's going on in this world? And and all you're going to say to me is, don't worry about things. Come on, we can't live with these simple platitudes, it's just not enough. But then I say to myself, hold on a minute, Paul's not just giving us simple platitudes. He's not saying like that other snappy song to a younger generation perhaps now, Don't worry, be happy. I hate that song. (laughs) And it's such a snappy tune, right? It comes on the radio, and before you know it, you're tapping your foot and you're singing along, and I hate that song. But there it is. But that's not the message that we have in this text In this text, if you'll flip ahead for me, if we were to paraphrase what's going on, it is this. It is worry about nothing, pray about everything. Now, does that make sense to folks? You don't worry about things because you can pray about them. That transforms the way we look at things radically. It's it's just a totally different thing. You see, prayer has a way of straightening out your priorities, especially if you include a heavy dose of thanksgiving. When we pray appropriately, it just transforms our way of seeing things. We're no longer overwhelmed by the situation that we're faced. We have another way of seeing things. I thought I'd give you a personal illustration here about how that's worked in my own life. Do you want to go? Maybe take a break? No? (laughs) All right, I warned you. During uh, my seminary years of training, we had an experience that facilitates us understanding uh, this passage. Between my first and second year of uh, being at the seminary, I was attending Knox College and um, as, as uh, my good friend Alex said in the introduction, I had been an executive at Hewlett-Packard, and so I had created this beautiful, if you remember Lotus, one, two, three, that's how old I am, a spreadsheet that, that was to how we would finance our way through this seminary education. And it was, it was this beautiful thing. Oh, I mean, numbers, I sometimes get carried away with numbers. But these numbers said we could sell our house, and with the capital proceeds, I could buy a little house up near Eugenia, and my family could relocate there and live there, and I could commute to, to, to Knox College in Toronto, and I would do this. I would, I would preach occasionally, make a little bit of money on the side, and, and the numbers said, we would live, (laughs) we would eat, we would have shelter. And this was a great plan. And so we found that little house, one and a half stories, acre of land right there by Lake Eugenia, and we signed a deal to purchase it. Put our house up for sale, ready to go. And at the last minute, middle of August, This lovely little old lady named Victoria, I can say her name now because she's long past, got cold feet. She's over 80 years old. Her doctor said, you know, you have a heart condition, you need to to downsize, you need to move into something different, you can't stay living in this house. But she decided she could not leave the house. My real estate agent said, we've got one over on her, she signed the deal. And we said, I'm sorry, you didn't listen to us very well. We're going into Christian ministry. We're not sending this lady out on the street. So we ripped up the deal, but now we have nowhere to go. There's two weeks till seminary school starts. Our house is for sale because we can't afford to live there anymore. So what do we do? Worry. <laughs> I knew you all knew the answer. We worry. Worry, worry, worry. And and then we pray. And the first answer to our prayer was very interesting. The Border World Missions phoned. And we thought they were our rescuers. And they said, You have an application in for a married student's charge. And I said, Yeah, we do. Are you are you our savior? And they said, Maybe. We have, we have a charge in Valleyfield." And I said, Field? Oh, that sounds interesting. Where's that? Up in the cottage country? That'll be lovely. My family and I, oh, we could commute down to college, and they would love to live up in cottage country. And they said, No, it's not in cottage country. I said, Oh, well, where is it? They said, Oh, it's in Quebec. <laughs> I said, Quebec? you got to be kidding me! How could I commute from Quebec to Knox College? That's way too far. Besides that, my wife would never go for that. So I said, thank you. Nice. night. I hung up, and then I yelled, you'll never guess what happened, honey! And she said, well, we've been praying about it. Why would you not consider it? And of course, I was put in my place properly. I said, when you go on your knees and God gives you an answer to your prayer, you don't just hang up on Him. So, to make a long story shorter, we went to Valleyfield, Quebec. But first, we had to be enrolled in two seminaries because uh, we weren't sure that would work out. I had to preach like I was preaching for a call as a student to be accepted there. And so down we went, and we preached that Sunday. And oh man, this section of our congregation this morning is more than we had in three small congregations that I was going to be called to, to look after while I was at school. And I thought, oh boy, this is really going to be something. My kids going to French school, my family in a bilingual, like... You know, 3% Anglophone town. I don't know if this will work. So we're driving home. This is not a word of a lie. And from Montreal to Cornwall, we're saying, Oh, those people, they're so lovely. They need care of a pastor. We have to go. From Cornwall to Kingston, are you kidding me? They don't even have a place for us to live. The manse was rented, and we didn't know where we would go. And from Kingston to Oshawa, oh, but they're such dear, lovely people. They do need someone to bring them the Gospel. Yeah. And then from Oshawa to Toronto, well, there'll be someone. It doesn't have to be us. And then from Oshawa to Milton, they're so lucky that we lived in Milton, it was, we have to go. And so we went. And it was an amazing time for three years transfer our education to Presbyterian College, and serve those wonderful, wonderful people. And I could tell you so many stories. But we have to get on with what Paul doing. So worry could have tied us up in knots and left us hopeless. But prayer, even though it wasn't exactly what we had hoped for, became a fantastic adventure for three years. So finally, in the next slide as we continue to read, finally, brothers and sisters, oh, the whatevers. (laughs) Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. First of all, I'd like to speak to those who are bibliophiles who just love this stuff. We have a little inclusio, such a playful thing. If we go back to verse seven, it was uh, the God of peace, and now, or excuse me, it was the peace of God, and now it's the God of peace. So we have a sandwich. A beautiful sandwich, describing how the God of peace is near first, and then what is the peace of God? The peace of God are these things, the seven whatevers. And the seven whatevers are like virtues. And they're like virtues that are true whether you're a Christian or not, which is what makes this powerful. He's not just speaking to Philippians in church Sunday morning. He's speaking to the entire city. If you want to have a life of contentment and fulfillment and to be together, this is how you do it. But the best thing about it is the way he has the conclusion. The God of peace will be with you. Now, there's seven whatever's. And he's putting everything on the line and he's telling us that that the pursuit of these are what make life worth living. Not a maniacal proof. So if we go ahead one slide here. He doesn't give us the seven deadly sins and say, hey guys, you've got to avoid these. He gives us Seven whatevers to pursue. And that's what I love about Paul. Paul is not tearing things down. You would think him being law-oriented, he'd be telling us, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this. But instead, if we go to the next slide, he's giving us these beautiful whatevers. And it reminded me of Jesus' teaching in the temple. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, whatever you have learned from me. And the only one I tripped up on was the last one. Those seven whatevers were so beautiful. And then he says, whatever you have learned from me, and he's not Jesus, he's Paul. And I thought, whoa, that sounds a little bit self-inflated, doesn't it? Follow me. Learn from me. But then, I kind of got myself in the right place. And on the next slide, I remembered... Oh, it's not that slide. I'm going to finish with that one. Is there not a picture of um, shipwrecks? Yeah. I remembered from 2 Corinthians, who was talking to me? What this person's witness and testimony was all about. It wasn't about some guy who went to seminary and did some crazy things in response to prayer. It was about a man whose testimony and witness was, I was shipwrecked for the Lord. I was flogged five times. I was stoned. I was beaten with rods. Why? Because of his faithful service of the Lord. So when he says, you can follow me, you can take my example You can accept my teaching. Uh, Okay, I'm on board. I believe a man who will do this for his faith. So that's what that was all about. So now let's bring it all together in the last verses. Can we go back to uh, verse 10? I rejoiced, so we're tying back to how we opened the chapter. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. That's so fantastic. How did they show it, the Philippians? They supported his ministry. They gave to him so that he could go to Jerusalem to offer, uh, to support those who were poor and having a difficult time with their faith. So he's rejoicing that they have found a way to serve the Lord through him. That's my, one of my absolute favorite verses in the Bible. I can do all this through Christ who strengthens me. So the conclusion of the letter is a gift. It's a gift to everyone. It's a gift to help you understand that in every and any situation, you have the ability to be content. And you have it not of yourself, But you have it because the strength of Christ can be in you. Do you understand that? It is a transcendent gift to you. I'm going to conclude with uh, something that happened to me that's not in my notes. Um, while, While I was having my summer vacation this year, I thought, oh, it's so wonderful to be retired. Nobody phones me anymore. Nobody needs me anymore. And then I ended up doing a wedding and a funeral. And I thought, how does this happen? can can I put some letters after my name or something? Instead of saying MDiv and all that other crap, I can say, not available. (laughs) But anyway, it happened. And when it happened for the funeral, I was of a mind to say, I can't. You know, those things eviscerate you as a minister. And the one I was asked to do was one that just took everything I had. It was someone I had been very close with in my last congregation. He was 40 years old, and he was killed tragically in a farm accident. And what I want to share with you is his wife's reaction at the funeral. She wanted to speak. And when she spoke, she gave a a speech that theologically was terrible. But, witness-wise and testimony-wise, was 110%. It was amazing. And everybody that was in that sanctuary listened to her you could have heard a pin drop. Now that is what Philippians 4 is truly about. It is about not getting things 100% theologically sound, correctly, boom, nobody can ever argue with me. It is about having such a love of Christ, a love of of, of your spouse, that you can stand before people as the tears are falling from your face and say things that move everybody that's there. Huh? That is what Paul is trying to express in this letter. That's why he can be shipwrecked. That's why he can be beaten. That's why he never ever gave up and always proclaimed that same message. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. May it be so for all of us here at Courtright. Amen.